Well, that was a good moment. I'm like still feeling that. I was like a pot. James and the team, you just, that, that was awesome. That was awesome. Who likes good news? Yeah, right? You like good news. Nobody, nobody's sitting here going, you know what I really hope to get when I go home today? Bad news. Come on, bad news. I mean, we like good news. You know, we like things like, uh, oh, sorry, sir, that's on sale. Oh, okay. We like um, y- your package has arrived. You know, that's good news. We like uh, your table is ready. You know, good news, like, don't worry, that rash will go away on its own. <laughs> you know, but that's like normal, everyday good news. That's like lowercase g good news. You know, what's better than that kind of good news? You know what's better than good news? Good news. You know, like, good news. News like, she said yes. That's right, she did. It's a little depressing to look at this picture and see that my wife is somehow as beautiful and more beautiful than that, and I have just begun my, like, downward progression. (laughs) Though I definitely got the better end of that, so I'm okay with that. Or good news like, you're going to be a dad. No, no, this is an old one. This is an old one. (laughs) This is from when our, our, our Bethany was pregnant with our first son, because if this was yesterday, that would not have been good news. <laughs> if this was yesterday, my face would look very different right now. That's some of the significant good news in life. But we're going to talk about news this morning that's even gooder, the goodest news. And if you're an English teacher, I apologize. <laughs> we're going to talk about the, the best news that there possibly is as we finish up our series on Colossians called Enough. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn to Colossians 4. We're going to read verses 2 to 6. Uh, Paul ends, Paul's the, the guy who wrote this, the Apostle Paul. He's writing this letter to the church at Colossae, and he ends by mentioning some of the people that he's worked with and sending greetings to other people, and ends at the very end by reminding him, hey, I'm, I'm in chains, and, and writing his signature so they knew it was from him. But before that part, he sums up kind of the whole message of Colossians in these couple verses. So let's read along. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. Pray for us, too, that God will give us many opportunities to speak about his mysterious plan concerning Christ. That is why I am here in chains. Pray that I will proclaim this message as clearly as I should. Live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response to everyone. Paul's talking to me about this message. Right? And really, the whole book of Colossians has been talking about this message. And what he's talking about is the gospel. Now, if you've been around church for any time, you might have heard that before. If, this is, if that's the first time, me saying it just then it's the first time I heard it, that's okay, because I'm going to explain it. But the gospel, it, it can be one of those words that kind of gets used, but we don't totally know what it means. And it's like you've heard it enough that you've reached the point where you can comfortably ask, what does that mean again? And so we just were like, oh, yeah, sure. No, totally. Right. Uh-huh. Like awkwardly, because we don't want to admit it. And I get that. That's okay. The gospel is really a simple idea. It's this massively big but really simple idea. The gospel is the good news about Jesus. I mean, gospel, the word gospel literally means good news. It's the good news about Jesus. The gospel is the what and the why and the how. The gospel is the message that the whole Bible has been fleshing out and explaining. Back in the beginning of the Bible where there's brokenness and sin first enters the world and we're separated from God's presence and then God keeps telling people that he's going to send them a forever king that will rescue them forever and then ultimately sending Jesus. I mean, that's the message of the Bible is the gospel. God rescuing people to himself, redeeming people out of their brokenness, buying people out of the pain and the mess we've made of life and bringing us to himself. 
So one pastor describes the gospel like this. The gospel offers forgiveness for the past, new life for the present, and hope for the future. Another pastor says the gospel alone liberates you to live a life of scandalous generosity, unrestrained sacrifice, uncommon valor, and unbounded courage. The gospel is what matters to Paul. So matters to Paul, praying about it, thanking God for it, sharing it with others, looking for opportunities to advance its cause. Paul knows that the gospel saves and empowers. The gospel enables and it compels. It, it's a huge responsibility and it's a joyous privilege. And as he concludes the book of Colossians, he keeps the gospel, its work and its workers front and center. And he starts by outlining this idea that the gospel invites us in and sends us out. There's going to be tension in what the gospel is. And the first tension is the gospel invites us in and sends us out. It invites us in because we're separated from God. That's what our sin has done. Sin is when we fall short of God's standard, when we miss the mark of God's perfection. That's sin, and that sin separates us from God because God is perfect and can't be around that. We're broken in our connection with God, but God's not okay with that. And so God enters our story in the form of Jesus. And through Jesus, he welcomes us into his family, into God's presence, into the relationship that we broke and that we long for, even if we don't know it. We're invited in regardless of who we are or what we look like or what we've done. The gospel invites us into God, invites us to him. We're not kept at arm's length because we've fallen short. Instead, the God of the universe welcomes us to himself, really pursues us and invites us in. It's an aggressive invitation. It's the person who wants you to come to their party and keeps asking you until you finally say yes. God invites us in. But then he sends us out. He sends us out. And look at what Paul is talking about the implications of the gospel, what it looks like. He says in verse 3, give us many opportunities to share. In verse 4, to proclaim this message. There's a participatory part. There's an outward part. And the reality is when we understand how significant it was for us to be invited in, to be known and loved by God, why wouldn't we want others to be invited in as well, right? When we understand how significant it is to be invited in by God, why wouldn't we want others to be invited in as well? If faith we're like climbing a mountain. Sometimes we can think of it like my goal is to get to the top and all I need to be concerned with is myself. Once I get to the top, I'm okay. I just want to get to the top of the mountain. That's where I want to be. But that's not what God has laid out for us, right? We're supposed to help others along the way because there will be times when we need help. There have been times when we have needed help. And it's not to say that you have to even be at the top of the mountain to be able to see the way forward. It's that no matter where you are in your journey, all God is asking is for you to turn your flashlight backwards and say to people behind you, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow the steps that I've taken because I'm doing my best to follow him. We're invited in and we're sent out. Right? The gospel invites us, right? It welcomes us into a new family. The gospel welcomes us into a new family and sends us to bring others in as well. Imagine if everyone you cared about in your life was a village. You lived in this village and everyone is dying of this, of this incurable disease. Everyone has a terminal illness and you're out walking around and you see this bush and you're curious and you're hungry and you see these berries and so you're like, you know what, I'm just going to pop them in my mouth. What, what could possibly go wrong? And you throw these berries in and you're instantly cured. If there's any kids listening, please do not eat berries like that. That will only be bad news. It's just an illustration. But you eat these berries and you're instantly cured. What's the next thing you do? What is the very next thing you do? 
You shake that bush to death. You get all of the berries that you can and you go back to the people that you know and love and you have them eat these berries. Even if they're like, I don't want a berry. No, I'm not interested in a berry. You're like, dude, you need this berry. I'm gonna get this berry in you however I need to. Once you've arrived, once you've been invited in, once you, you know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, don't close the door behind you. And what Paul is saying here is don't even simply hold it open for others. Go out into the street with a megaphone and guide others in too. We've been invited in. We're sent out to invite others in as well. Someone likely did that for you. How can you do that for someone else? And if no one did, don't you wish someone would have? The gospel invites us in and sends us out. Second thing that Paul outlines here is that the gospel sets us free and requires something of us. The gospel sets us free and requires something from us. Frees us from death and compels us towards life. Frees us from darkness and compels us towards light. This is the heart of what Paul is getting at. This is when he talks about, the, in verse 3, the mysterious plan concerning Christ. It means the way that we have been rescued, that we've been set free, that we bring our brokenness and our baggage to the party, but through the hope of Jesus, the reality of the gospel frees us from that. It's freedom from guilt and pain and shame and past hurts and failures. It's freedom from the things we can't fix about ourselves. Freedom from the things that haunt us. Freedom from other people's expectations, from other people's ideas about our value. Freedom from finding our identity in our spouse or our job or our achievements or even how we feel about ourselves because those things can and do change. Freedom from feeling like we aren't good enough, like we aren't smart enough, like we aren't attractive enough, like we aren't talented enough. It's freedom from fear and jealousy and bitterness, and hate. We are free because when we know Jesus, when we receive the gospel, when we are changed by the good news about Jesus, God doesn't look at us and see the broken, imperfect, baggage-carrying dumpster fire that we truly are. Instead, through Jesus, those things are taken away and we're washed clean. And when God looks at us, he sees the rightness and the goodness of his son. Jesus takes his rightness before God and gives that to us and takes on our brokenness onto himself. And we are set free. That is real, meaningful, and forever freedom. And this kind of freedom was very real to Paul. Very real to Paul. He was on house arrest, chained to some Roman guards when he's writing this letter, right? And we see him repeatedly asking for prayer. But you know what the prayer isn't for? for him to be released from prison, for him to be freed from this unjust imprisonment. He's not saying, God, I've been wrongfully imprisoned. Get me out of here and then I'll share for you. He's asking prayer not for his own freedom. He's asking prayer for opportunities to talk about Jesus with others. You know why? Because he already is free. His location may be constrained. His opportunities to go out on his own may be limited. He may be stuck next to these two soldiers in this house, but he is not a prisoner and he knows that. He says, I am already free. I can't be more free than I am because of Jesus. Think about that. 
You're in prison and you're asking for prayer and nowhere on your list is I'd love to get out of here. I feel like that would be rather high on mine. And I'd be like, yeah, God, I mean, I would love to like keep doing this ministry thing, but it's like super hard when I'm stuck in here. So if you could like arrange that, that'd be great. Doesn't that freedom that Paul has experienced, doesn't that sound appealing? Freedom that no matter what's going on in your life, you know you're free, that nothing else can hold you prisoner. That kind of freedom is powerful, but it requires something. It's not freedom to do whatever we want. It's not a self-determined freedom. It's not a man-made freedom. It's a God-given freedom. It's a Jesus-won freedom. The gospel requires that we trust it, surrender to it, fill our lives with it, obey it, and be an active participant in it. The gospel frees us from our old story and writes for us a new one. Gospel frees us from our old story. Our story is dead-ended without Jesus. It's, It's going nowhere, and it frees us from that story, and instead God writes us a better one. I love movies. I love comic book movies, so the last 10 years have been very kind to me. My wife and I recently saw Spider-Man Far From Home, and it was good. It was good. You know there have been seven live-action Spider-Man movies? In 1999, Marvel sold the rights to Spider-Man to Sony. They weren't making their own movies at that point. They didn't have this vision for this huge extended universe like they do now. And so Sony made the first Spider-Man movie uh, back in 2002. That's the original Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. Uh, I don't know if you saw that, but it's like, that's the first time you like something like that had been on the screen. It's like, that's really cool. And then they made a second one. And that one was great because that came with Dr. Octopus was the bad guy. And then they made a third one. They made Spider-Man 3. It was uh, not good. (laughs) By far the worst rated verse reviewed of all these. It gave us emo Spider-Man. It gave us this like angsty, like just weird. It just, it it didn't work. It did not work. In fact, it was, it was so not good. It effectively killed the Tobey Maguire franchise and they didn't make Spider-Man movies for five years. And then Sony tried again. They rebooted it with the amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2. And 1 was good and 2 was fine, but it's hard to really buy into Peter Parker as a high school student when he's played by Andrew Garfield, who looks like he's 34. It's like, oh, I bet physics class was hard, Peter. Where's your, where's your full-time job and your pension? But then Marvel got creative control of the, of the Spider-Man franchise and they worked their magic and they rebooted it again with Spider-Man Homecoming and Spider-Man Far From Home. And those were both awesome. So good. So enjoyable. In fact, the first of these two movies is the highest rated Spider-Man of, of all of them. And the second is the highest grossing Spider-Man of all of them, over $1 billion. Marvel's reboot is so much better. Sony kept trying to do these movies, and they just weren't great. They were fine. And Marvel's like, hang on, we're going to take, take this over. Watch what we do. And it's so much better. And that's what we're talking about here, is that we've written a story that ourselves that has an unsatisfying ending. It is going to dead end somewhere. But when we let God write the end of our story, it is exponentially better. If you want to continue this illustration out, God is, remember, it's, an, it's just an illustration. God is Marvel here, writing the great story. Sin would be DC because it ruins everything. (laughs) Everything. It just makes everything worse. The gospel sets us free and it requires something of us. 
And the irony is what it requires is for our good. It is for our benefit. God requires something of us that actually means far more to us than we could possibly find on our own. God says, you need to do this, not because I'm a bully, but because this is how you find the life you know, the life you want to know. Gospel sets us free and it requires something of us. Third thing that Paul outlines is the gospel is an awesome responsibility and a joyous privilege. It's an awesome responsibility and a joyous privilege. Look at the way he talks about what it looks like here. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. Pray for us. Being here in chains for the sake of the gospel. As clearly as I should share. Paul knows that this is a responsibility. This is, this is a burden that he's been given. But it's not a miserable burden, right? It's, it's the tension between an obligation and a privilege. We don't want to be obligated to do things. We want the freedom to choose. We don't want obligation. And so sometimes when we hear, I have a responsibility in this, it's like, well, I don't want God to boss me around. I want my own freedom. But what we misunderstand is that while it is an awesome responsibility, it is an incredible privilege. Think of it like something you have to do that you also really, really like doing. As I spent time thinking about this, I was like, maybe mowing the grass, because I have to mow the grass, but then it's like I find it kind of therapeutic and that's not bad. And then I realized, no, because if I never had to mow the lawn again, I wouldn't take my lawnmower out and find another lawn to mow. So probably not that. And I thought, okay, maybe it's like voting, right? That we have a responsibility to vote, but in our country, it's not just a responsibility. It's a privilege that we get to do that. Okay. And then I thought maybe better one is parenting. Because I definitely have to parent. I mean, like, that's legally pretty clear. I have to parent. But I also get to parent. I love my kids. Being a, their dad is one of the greatest joys of my life. And then I thought about being a pastor. I love being a pastor. I have to work, but I also love what I do. I love getting to be part of people's stories. I love getting to, to help explain Jesus. I love getting to walk with people through the good and bad moments. It's just such a privilege. And that's what, what God is laying out here. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. There is an awesome responsibility here. When we know Jesus, we're called by God to be a part of this. And the stakes are high. It's not just life and death. It's life and death forever. There are no higher stakes. And that is the responsibility we're given. And some of you might be thinking, well, isn't that the pastor's job? Isn't that why we have you? And I would say, sure, it's definitely my job. But it's not just my job. It's our job. If you would call yourself a follower of Jesus, it is our job. Some of us do it for a living. Some of us do it professionally, but it is our job. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you have a part in this. All followers of Jesus are missionaries. There's a way you can think about it. All of us are missionaries. We all have our own little mission fields where we live, where we work, where we play. We all have that responsibility. But it's also an incredible privilege. It's not just something we have to do, but something we get to do. Some of you know because you've seen it. Seeing God work in people's lives is incredible. I was thinking this week about some of those stories. I'm thinking about sitting in my car talking with Nick about the pain of his upbringing and the hope of Jesus. Talking with Stephen and, and walking with him through his challenging high school years only to find out now he's leading a Bible study and pursuing ministry. Talking with Keegan where he learned how to share his story and then finding out he goes to college and shares about Jesus with his roommates. Knowing that Tim came to know Jesus because his friend Brian reached out to him and pursued him and gave him opportunities. Those things are incredibly exciting. A friend of mine texted me this week, and they said, I have so many people hitting me up about church, people that I've been begging to come. Two of my friends just told me last week that they were in, that they were going to come. 
I have been seriously praying for this friend for years. Then another family in recovery brought someone else that just got out of rehab. I doubt they have been to church in years. My friend was so excited. There were so many exclamation points in this text. They were thrilled because they understood it's not just something they had to do. It's something they got to do. It's a privilege. I talked with a woman after the first service. She said a couple in their life, of her and her husband's life, are going through a really difficult time. They're dealing with a serious illness. And they said any time that this couple asks them for help, they try and do it. Every time they ask for help, they try and do it. They want to be there for them because they know that that's a way that they can live out the gospel and show Jesus to their friends. That is a powerful example. Because when we see the significance that it makes, when we see someone kind of, the light bulb go on, or somebody surrender their life to Jesus, or take a step of faith, or, or God work in their life in some way. Man, those things fuel us up. Moments like that make all the invites and the effort and all the times that we're told, no, I'm good, they make it worth it. They make it worth it. The gospel calls us to invest our lives in what God is doing, but it also allows us to be part of what God is doing. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to do this. That's what's crazy to me. God doesn't need us to communicate about him. God doesn't need us to be part of his plan. We don't really bring anything to the table. God invites us in. It is as if God is saying, you have a chance on the ground floor to be part of the winning team, and not just the winning team this season, but the winning team forever, for all of eternity, that beats the snot out of the bad guys so badly, they go away and we win forever. You can get in on the ground floor, wear the jersey, have the swag you want in. Yeah, and I think we hear that and we go, That sounds pretty good. Sign me up for that. God allows us to participate in what he's doing. It's an awesome responsibility, but it's also a joyous privilege. So how do we experience the richness of the gospel? We just outline what it is, and Paul's talking about the, the tension in it. How do we experience that? How do we live that out? How does Paul say that should affect our lives? He talks about a couple things that we can do very clearly, and the first is pray. He says, pray often, pray purposefully, and pray thankfully. Pray often, pray purposefully, and pray thankfully. Devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. And now maybe some of you might be thinking, well, prayer, like, I don't, I don't know, really know what that is. It's another one of those things that we talk about, but it's like, uh, do I need a book for that? Like, is, is there a list of words I need to say? And I would love for you to hear me say this because prayer can be confusing and, and scary sometimes. Prayer is simply talking with God. That's it. It's talking with God. Talking with the God who already knows you, who already loves you. It's just talking with him. The way you talk to your, to your friends, to your spouse, to your coworkers. Hopefully more polite than maybe you talk with your coworker. But it's, it's talking with the people in your life. It's just talking with God. Prayer is how we tap into the power of God to accomplish the things in our lives that we can't accomplish on our own. There is no list of things you need to say. It is instead coming to God with a, an open heart and, and just talking. Just talking. And Paul says, pray often. Really says, devote yourself to it. Commit to it. Make it a part of your life. Pray with unrelenting persistence. I don't know about you, but that challenges the snot out of me. Because if I had to fill in whatever adjective should be there, am I going to say often? Too many times it's pray sometimes. 
pray occasionally, pray when it's convenient. But Paul says, pray often. He also says, pray purposefully. I mean, literally, pray on purpose. Pray on purpose for what's going on in your life and in the world around you. It means don't just pray when you need it. Pray on purpose. Pray for God to change your heart. Pray for the strength to get through the day. Pray that God would help you overcome the things you struggle with. Because the power of prayer is not just that we have access to the powerful God of the universe, the God who is capable of whatever he wants. When we pray, we don't only connect with God in real ways. When we pray, we are changed as well. God draws our hearts to his. He changes us from the inside out. And the more connected we are to him, the worse sin looks and the weaker temptation gets. Lastly, he says, pray thankfully. Be intentional to thank God for the good that he has done in your life. I think one of the things we can be thankful for is that God even lets us pray to him, that he allows that. God invites us to talk directly to him. That's incredible. I have a hard time getting a real live person on the phone when I call my cable company. And the God of the universe says, I always have time for you. Always have time for you. Slowing down and praying thankfully gives us the chance to see things that we might otherwise miss. Jerry talked about this in a blog post a few weeks ago. Not just when things are good, but even more so in the midst of pain, praying thankfully helps us see the things we would otherwise miss, that we are not alone, that God is still at work even when we don't see it at first. What's your attitude towards prayer? Paul says it pretty clearly, and we need to ask ourselves some hard questions. How often do you pray? Are you going through the motions or are you genuinely engaging God at a heart level? Are you praying not just about what you want or what you feel like you need from God, but are you also praying about what he wants for you? Are you praying about your whole life or just the big stuff? Are you thanking God for the good things in your life, especially when life is hard? What would it look like for you to set time aside every day to connect with God through prayer? Maybe it's in the morning while you eat breakfast. Maybe it's praying on your way to work. For me, it's I, I take a walk around my neighborhood. I take a walk around my block. And for me, I pray out loud. I pray just kind of quietly to myself. It helps me focus. It, it helps me focus on, on this conversation. And I will just talk with God. And I can tell you, the moments in my life when I feel like prayer isn't working are, if I'm honest, the moments I look back and realize I'm not really praying. I'm having a one-sided dialogue where I'm just listing the things that God owes me, or I'm not really praying at all. But the moments in my life when I feel most connected to God, when I feel most centered in him, when I feel the most whole, those are the moments when I'm praying regularly, when I'm seeking him, because that is when I allow him to work in my heart. And instead of saying, do for me, I say, change me, work in me. Pray, pray. Second thing Paul says is live wisely. Live wisely among those who are not believers. And what he's getting at here is how we live matters. Folks, how we live matters. We're called to make a good impression because one of the things that undermines the gospel, the message of the gospel in people's lives the most, one of the most significant things is Christians who say they're Christians and don't live like Christians. When we say we're followers of Jesus and, and yet we cheat on our spouse or we, or we cheat on our taxes or we gossip about coworkers, the people in our lives look at us and go, why would I want what you have? 
you're no different than me. And that should sting because it stings me too. We're called to live wisely. How do we represent Jesus? How do we not just tell others what we believe? How do we show others what we believe? People don't just need to hear about Jesus. They need to see about Jesus. Paul continues on. The gospel gets fleshed out by the way we live and we show that we believe it when we live it out. And so he challenges us to be gracious. He says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive. Gracious meaning share the truth in a kind and gentle and civil way because you're not gonna shout or shame anyone into a relationship with Jesus. It just doesn't work. I've never heard of anyone that just got yelled at about how awful they were and at the end they're like, you know what? I am terrible. I couldn't put my finger on it before. But man, you just... Yes. How would that feel for you? Do you enjoy when you're unloaded on and told how bad you are at stuff? Do you enjoy when all that's brought up are the things that you're bad at or the things you fail in? Do you, is that life-giving for you? No. How do we communicate with graciousness? Because when we've experienced grace, it should make us gracious towards others. When we've experienced the grace that God has towards us, it should make us gracious towards others. And this is a quick aside, but it's worth saying, one of the best ways we can do that is stop being awful on social media. When your friends know you're a follower of Jesus and they see you post something really nasty, that undermines what you're trying to do. Have a dialogue in a different context because what we do, the way we live matters. The way we live matters. Third thing he says is make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. Man, every opportunity. That's a high bar. No wasted moments. Why? I think the reason is because it matters that much and we don't know what's next for us and we don't know what's next for the other people in our lives. We don't know. How do we take advantage of every opportunity, being gracious like Paul talked about, living wisely, meeting people where we are? How do we take advantage of every opportunity? And listen, there's some of you here that have been hurt by church. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, but you came today and you're like, man, I just feel beat up, like I've been yelled at or told I'm terrible. Or maybe you're here and you, just, you carry baggage with you about, about the way Christians treated you, interacted with you. And I want you to hear from me this morning. I want you to hear from a pastor. I'm sorry. Truth is not a weapon to be wielded at other people. Truth is meant to point us to the gospel. It is meant to point us to the hope we have in Jesus. Truth should not be used to cut others down. And if you've been hurt, I am sorry that we have done a poor job. And what I would ask that you would hear me say is that trust that we as people are broken and flawed and we mess up and we fall short of what God has called us to be. But God is perfect in all the areas we are not. All the ways that you have been hurt by people, God is perfect. Know that the poor picture of love that you've experienced from other people is not what God wants you to know. He wants you to know the full, whole picture of love, how deeply he cares for you. Paul wants us to understand him more so that we can have the right response. He wants us to grow in our knowledge and understanding because the more we understand God, the better we can communicate. The more we understand, the better we can share with other people. When I think about this stuff that I like barely can wrap my brain around, when my kids ask me to explain it, I'm like, uh, ask your mom. <laughs> I don't know. 
the better we know something, the more clearly we can share it. And what I find fascinating in this is that there's really a relational piece to this, right? If we are going to be able to have a right response when someone asks a question, the implication is there's a relationship to that. You can't have a right response for someone until they've asked you a question, and they can't ask you a question if they don't know you. So I think the challenge here is build a relationship with others. Live differently in that relationship. Engage personally. Cultivate trust. Share your faith. Give room for questions. Folks, meet people where they are, not where you are, and definitely not where you wish they were. Roll up your sleeves and get into the messy realness of life. Move towards others because it makes the journey shorter for them. Move towards others because it makes the journey shorter for them. And that is exactly what Jesus did for us. That's the heart of the gospel, that God loves us and moved towards us, that we might understand what it means to be loved that deeply, that we might understand what it means to be invited in, to be set free, and that we might understand that being a part of what he's doing is an incredible privilege. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that that's true. Father, there are people here this morning who don't yet know Jesus that way, who don't yet understand the the reality of the gospel in their lives. And Lord, I ask right now that you would speak to their heart and help them to understand that you love them, that you want them to know that the freedom that, that that you offer. Father, help them to understand that the life we try and live on our own will never get us where we want to go. But instead, Lord, you say, come to me. Understand my peace. Understand my love. And Father, for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, Lord, help us to not lose sight of the richness of the gospel in our lives, of the good news about Jesus, that we might not just sit on our hands once we know it, and instead we say, how do we bring as many people with us as possible? Thank you for loving us enough to reach out towards us, to meet us where we were, to make our journey shorter. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.